After five months of closed-door investigation, of talking in private with intelligence agents and officials, most of the senators now agree with Chairman Frank Church that the CIA has indeed been a rogue elephant out of control. Enough phony rumors of America's secret plans to launch a war. Maybe you'll begin to believe some of it. So to those Iraqis who were mistreated by members of the U.S. Armed Forces, I offer my deepest apology. And none of this would have been possible without the economic assistance and military training and equipment that we provided. Now we have one country in the, uh, the Western Hemisphere, Cuba, that is exporting revolution. And we didn't want another one, Chile doing it. We're fortunate to have men and women who uh, work hard at the CIA, serving on our behalf. These are patriots. And uh, whatever the report says, if it diminishes their contributions to our country, it is way off base, way off base. Allow yourself dazzling flight, flights of outrageous imagination. Exceed everyone's great expectations and direst prophecies. If you would be a great poet, be the conscience of the race. Resist much, obey less. Challenge capitalism masquerading as democracy. Challenge all political creeds, including radical populism and hooligan socialism. Generate collective joy in the face of collective gloom. Secretly liberate any being you see in a cage. Liberate have-nots and enrage despots. Have you ever heard, God help me, I'm about to ask this. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Mike the Headless Wonder Chicken? In 1947, a Colorado man named Lloyd Olson went to slaughter some of his chickens one morning, and much to his horror and eventual disbelief, he so botched one attempt that he missed the chicken's jugular and left just enough of the brainstem attached that the chicken survived. Mike, as you might have guessed from his nom de showbiz, became famous shortly thereafter. Olson toured the fortunate fowl all over the United States, charging people 25 cents to see him. At his most popular, Mike was pulling in around $4,500 a month and was worth about 10,000, which in 2023 money would be almost 57,000 a month and Mike would be valued at more than $126,000. Olson would feed Mike with an eyedropper, and by all accounts, Mike was happy. He was described as a big fat chicken who didn't know he didn't have a head. He would peck and preen as if he weren't only, you know, partially a chicken. It's really not certain how long Mike might have lived such a life, because two years after the accident, while in a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, Mike's airway somehow became blocked and Olson realized that the eyedropper he used for feeding and for Mike's general well-being had been left at the show's previous tour stop. Sadly, Olson could do nothing but watch Mike choke to death. I'm glad to know that Mike was ostensibly happy. It seems clear that he was meticulously cared for up until the end, and that's not nothing. But this whole incident raises some questions. What does it mean to have dignity? to have pride. On the flip side, what is humiliation? What is humiliating? 
Like so many on this show, these questions have different answers for anyone you ask. But all the responses basically boil down to self-determination. The idea that you are in control of your life, your actions, your place in a world upon which you have to assess and understand your amount of influence. When these questions don't get asked, it creates a vacuum, a space for control to be sucked into, away from one party and potentially to another. We obviously can't map a headless chicken onto international politics or a discourse about human dignity on anything remotely like a one-to-one -one scale. But what about the story around it? We're told that Mike was happy. We're told that despite the egregiously mishandled attempted murder, he was well cared for. But why was he cared for at all? Because he made his owner money. And this is not to impugn Lloyd Olson, or to even suggest that I don't believe that his headless chicken did things that happy non-headless chickens do. But there's a certain cynicism in Olson's opportunistic response to his own horrible actions. This sort of thing happens on a large scale. Whole countries are mutilated and kept just barely alive in the name of profit. Control is ripped from the hands of their citizens and given to multinational corporations. People who should be healthy and self-determined are instead drip-fed poverty wages and discarded when they're no longer able to generate income for their de facto owner. And we're removed from this and told that this is a good thing. We're told that this violence and destruction happens in the name of freedom and economic prosperity. We're made to see, through the magic of show business, that the profit generated by these people is for their own benefit as well as ours. Mike was described as happy after all. What we're not allowed to see, what we're never allowed to see, is that when they slip these chains and seek their self-determination, they're still forced into further shackles that we have forged them. And crucially, these chains are a lot closer to home. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said, they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. Not many people know this, but there was a Black Widow in Marvel Comics who appeared 24 years prior to the Natasha Romanoff Black Widow of current Marvel Comics fame. The two are totally unrelated, but the first one is way cooler, so I'm gonna tell you about her. Her name is Clairvoyant, and she kills bad people for Satan. Her first appearance in Mystic Comics number four is a bit muddled and despite one or two panels of her glowing menacingly with Satan's righteous power. Not at all entertaining. Miss Voyant starts the story as a humble medium in the middle of a seance. 
she's about to contact a dead member of the family who's sitting in her spiritual chamber when the prudish matriarch of the brood interrupts and insults her. Before Claire can respond, a mysterious influence overtakes her, and she's compelled to place a curse upon the family. Needless to say, the parties do not part amicably. As the family drives home, the curse manifests and forces the car off the road. All but one of them die. In a maddened rage, the remaining family member returns to Clairvoyant's home and murders her. This is a bad move because Claire, now in hell, is fully in the thrall of Satan, and he's just given her the power to kill people by touching them. I don't know why. It's unclear. Anyway, she goes topside again and magically burns the emblem of a Black Widow spider into that guy's forehead, killing him instantly. She returns to Satan, who has decided to use her to hasten evildoers' journey to the underworld. In the next couple issues, she actually takes down weapons manufacturers and crime bosses. So I guess in early Marvel comics, Satan was a good guy. Very progressive. She doesn't appear again until, interestingly enough, she's used in a flashback in a 2005 Marvel Knights Spider-Man issue written by none other than Mark Miller. The sequence she's used in is actually a startlingly insightful take on corporate control of the government that, again, just shows that Mark Miller is almost there. He understands the problem, but as we explored in episode three of this season, he can never push through to the solution. But now to move on to the Black Widow everyone knows and tolerates. Natasha Romanov made her Marvel debut in 1964 in Tales of Suspense number 52, an Iron Man story. It should come as a surprise to no one that she starts out as a Soviet spy and that this issue is about as anti-Soviet as one can get. Now some of this material to us is comic. Also, I'd like to point out right here that in a couple of previous episodes, I accidentally said Russian when I meant Soviet. The Soviet Union was many more nationalities and ethnicities than simply Russian, and for that I apologize. Anyway, the story goes thus. Professor Ivan Vanko is a Soviet defector who was previously Iron Man's nemesis, the Crimson Dynamo, the communist equivalent of Tony Stark's Iron Man situation. He now works for the U.S. government after Tony offered him a research position. He's treated very well, which isn't surprising since actual CIA report number 62-116395 reveals that a real-life Soviet defector was given, quote, comfortable surroundings and considerable freedom of independent movement, for which he was described as being happy, relaxed, and appreciative. Vanko, now a zealous convert to the U.S. way of life, is helping Tony Stark with laser experiments to create yet another unstoppable weapon, because the United States is the bad guy and always has been. Across the world, two spies are being briefed for their assignment by a balding, animated blob that can only be Khrushchev, although they never refer to him by name. These are the glamorous Natasha Romanov and the gargantuan Boris. Little known fact, Per the 1919 Soviet Constitution, every time a man and a woman were paired for whatever reason, they legally had to change their names to Boris and Natasha on pain of death. And Jesus, you know that there are Americans out there who would probably actually believe that. Anyway, their assignment is to dispose of Tony Stark, Iron Man, whom everyone believes to be Stark's bodyguard at this point, 
and the traitorous Professor Vanko. When they arrive in the States, they beeline for Stark Industries and simply bully their way past Tony's assistant, Pepper Potts, who's sitting at the front desk. Tony agrees to give them a full tour of the facility for no reason other than the fact that Natasha is good-looking. He even leaves Boris to wander the place unsupervised so that he and Natasha can have some alone time. A guard finds Boris and tells him not to go into a restricted area, and then he leaves immediately, and Boris just walks into where he's not supposed to be. And it's no wonder that these people beat us to space. Boris, who has super strength, finds Vanko's workspace and tears into it through a wall. He then basically pulls a Ferris Bueller with an old recording of one of Vanko's lectures and tricks everyone into thinking Vanko is in his room while Boris carries his unconscious body in a sack right past the guards. Boris then dons Vanko's old crimson dynamo armor and trashes Stark Industries, which rules. Stark hears about this and has to cut short his date with the Black Widow. The two speed in Tony's car back to the facility and Tony ducks away to put on his own Iron Man armor. Boris gets the drop on Tony because Tony believes at first that it's Vanko in the Crimson Dynamo. The Black Widow and Boris take the unconscious Iron Man to a ship that's waiting for them in some harbor somewhere and set sail for home. Iron Man comes to and is able to get himself and the still incapacitated Vanko off the ship and back to Stark Industries. An actual fight between Iron Man and the Crimson Dynamo ensues, and Natasha, whom Tony still doesn't realize is a spy because he's a stupid idiot, tricks Tony into thinking she's hurt, which gives Boris time to smash Iron Man. Iron Man wins in the end, though, thanks to Professor Vanko's heroic sacrifice, as he uses the unstable laser from earlier in the issue to take down Boris, killing himself in the process. Iron Man laments the loss of his friend and the escape of the Black Widow, who used the cover of the laser blast to hightail it out of there. All in all, not a great comic and not a particularly good introduction to a character who's never been anyone's favorite. The history of the Black Widow is rife with red scare and confused female emancipation politics. These days, the organization that trained her is known as The Red Room because they can't just say The Reds anymore. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the big reveal of the sacrifice that she made to the Red Room was her ability to bear children, creating a not insignificant discussion on what that kind of representation means and whether or not that was a sacrifice worthy of a weighty reveal. But that's a discussion for another day. Okay, let's get started with this issue. You'd think that the 15 pages of fight scene in this 22-page comic would make it easier to write an episode about it, but you'd be wrong. Now I have to actually research things and fill time with informative content instead of hiding behind scene descriptions, and that sucks. It's the worst part of this project. I kid, of course. Anything is better than having to talk about the Ultimates. So let's talk about the Ultimates. On the opening page, we're given our first sighting of the two Black Ops Ultimates, Hawkeye, an expert archer, and the Black Widow, looking for all the world like they've just stepped out of the Matrix. And this is pretty funny, not just for how lame they look with their doofy sunglasses and leather trench coats, but also because a reference to the Matrix is incredibly heavy-handed for the eventual thrust of this issue. So heavy-handed, in fact, that Brian Hitch, the artist, drew Hawkeye and Black Widow deliberately like Neo and Trinity from the Matrix after reading Mark Miller's script, but without consulting Miller on it. I'm not so sure about that. He seems to know every move that's made around here the pair of heroes are casually discussing which office block they're going to attack. 
The next page shows that they have backup agents that have hidden themselves around the area as various civilians. A driver stuck in traffic, a suited man reading the Daily Bugle at a subway stop, a grimy construction worker with his hard hat backwards. Hawkeye gives them the go signal they've been waiting on in a panel with a bunch of people crossing the road on a do not walk sign. This isn't a clue or anything, I think it's just a mistake, or some sort of trite commentary on the state of life in New York City. Listen, if you've seen the office building scene in the first Matrix movie, then I really don't have to describe these next 15 pages to you. But I'm going to anyway, sorry. Hawkeye approaches the front desk of the office building he's decided to attack. He tells the person working there that his name is Clint Barton, and he has an appointment with a Mr. Jones in the accounting department. The front desk assistant tells him that he's not in the system without even checking the schedule. When questioned, he tells Hawkeye that he keeps all that information up here and taps his head. Hawkeye then shoots him in the brain with an arrow and says, not anymore, cue ball. He puts two arrows into the security guards before they can properly aim their guns at him. And then he murders every single fleeing person in the lobby. He leaves without retrieving any of his arrows because I guess he has a lot, even though he doesn't appear to be carrying a quiver. And that's not a huge deal to me, but it only annoys me because I already hate this book. It's like a coworker who does something relatively inoffensive, but it's magnified because the rest of their very existence gets on your nerves. We then turn the page to see that Hawkeye and Black Widow are, indeed, not fighting alone. For some reason, the UN has sent helicopters full of shock troops to help. Or at least, these are troops and choppers made to look like they're from the UN. I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about the United States' multinational ally apparatuses that capital uses to enforce its hegemony, particularly the UN. Originally, the Soviet Union had, after World War II, agreed to the creation of the UN only if it was included as one of the five permanent members of the Security Council and given veto power as such. This is how it intended to keep what it correctly viewed as the UN's imperialist mission in check. Now, what's so important about the Security Council? The Security Council is the UN body with the power to authorize the use of violence when nations are deemed to be non-compliant with the UN Charter. This most often manifests as economic sanctions, but it also has a more immediately violent side that gets whitewashed as something you've probably heard of. Peacekeeping missions. To quote an article from Liberation School titled The United Nations and Imperialism, quote, not once has the United Nations sent peacekeeping forces to oppose imperialist aggression anywhere in the world. Later in the piece, quote, the CIA worked with UN forces stationed in the Congo to kidnap and murder the newly elected Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, in 1960. The United Nations did nothing to stop the racist South African apartheid army and the US CIA from invading Angola in the 1970s. Overt intervention has been a hallmark of the United Nations, always in the interests of imperialism. Since its inception, the organization has intervened with peacekeeping missions more than 60 times. In the late 1980s, UN ground forces disarmed Namibian liberation fighters while allowing South African apartheid forces to roam free, resulting in mass killings. Then. As the elections for independence occurred, UN and South African joint patrols terrorized the population." End quote. 
There are currently 12 UN peacekeeping missions happening around the world. To elaborate on just a couple, in Morocco and the Sahrawi Republic, a project called the United Nations Mission for the Referendum in Western Sahara has been going since 1991. Despite the UN rhetorically considering the socialist independence movement of the region, called the Polisario Front, to be the legitimate representatives of the Sahrawi people in their struggle for self-determination, it has physically and economically enforced a ceasefire hidden behind the promise of a referendum for independence that has been consistently postponed for more than 30 years. In southern Lebanon, a UN group called UNIFIL, United Nations Interim Task Force in Lebanon, has been overseeing a supposed ceasefire between Lebanon and Israel since 1978. The main criticism of the UN's involvement, of course, is that despite its stated claim that UNIFIL was intervening to ensure peace between Israel and Palestinian forces in Lebanon, the peacekeeping troops rarely, if ever, intervened on behalf of Lebanon and always acted in favor of Israel. Now, to be fair, Israel had the exact opposite complaints about the UN forces, claiming that they were doing nothing to prevent attacks on Israeli borders. But considering that A, imperial propaganda is pure projection 99.99% of the time, and B, the UN fucking created Israel in 1947, you'll have to forgive me if I'm less inclined to believe Israel's claims. As we speak, UN peacekeeping forces are entangled in the conflict at the India-Pakistan border, an area of generational violence that was wholly the fault of one of the UN's most powerful and atrociously colonial members, the United Kingdom. We could go into detail about every single UN intervention, let alone sanctions, which are their own type of violence. But all of this is to say, again, that although this is a history podcast, as much as it is a podcast about theory and comic books, none of what I'm talking about has ever stopped. There's never any retribution for the crimes of the U.S. and its allies, certainly not internally. Kissinger just turned 100 outside of prison, for God's sake. George W. Bush can go to ball games with celebrities, and anyone who dares challenge this, be they a foreign leader or an intrepid journalist, is either demonized or ridiculed in the U.S. press, or overthrown or financially ruined, or, in the simplest of all crossovers, killed. Even the Ultimates hasn't stopped. This very month, June 2023, Marvel's bringing back the Ultimates in Ultimate Invasion Number 1, a story about the good guys failing to stop the bad guy from recreating the Ultimate Universe. It's an interesting move since Marvel clearly recognizes how divisive the Ultimate Universe comics were. At least every book except Ultimate Spider-Man, which just about everyone who isn't a big racist really likes. But speaking of the Ultimates, we're coming up on a ghastly page. This one consists of five panels that are meant to convey three things. The first two panels are of the aforementioned UN slash shield soldiers rappelling out of their helicopters and smashing en masse into the building's high story windows. The next two panels are of half of the office workers being slaughtered by the waves of those soldiers' automatic gunfire and the other half avalanching toward the exits. The final panel is tucked away in the corner. It's a square, narrow view of one of the elevators. It's just arrived on floor 33. Anyone paying attention will notice that this is out of the range of floors that Hawkeye instructed his guys to secure. Well, anyone reading the comic and paying attention. I didn't tell you that information because who cares? Anyway, the three things that we're supposed to take from this are as follows. One, 
The powers that be are overwhelming, capable of whatever they want, assuming they can throw enough resources at it. All individual soldiers are superheroes in their own right. The nations or entities they fight for are in control, in a good way. Two, whoever these office workers are, they're nothing compared to the might of a Western military. I say Western because despite how united the nations of the UN might be, as we've seen, they serve Western imperial interests or have no power to oppose them. And I'm pretty sure the helicopters were also emblazoned with the S.H.I.E.L.D. logo as well, which we know in the Ultimates universe to be a specific project of the United States. This brings us to point three. We don't have to know why all these people are being killed. The good guys look cool doing it. That's why the final panel is so understated. On the next page, we see Black Widow bursting from the elevator on floor 33 and continuing her part of the massacre. Thus, the calm, aloof nature of the elevator shot on this page communicates the level-headedness of this whole operation on the part of the good guys. It's the eye of the storm. They've got this. We don't have to worry. We don't have to know why all these people are being killed. And that's sort of it, right? That's everything about our understood relationship to imperial violence right there. We don't have to know details. We don't have to know who we're fighting and why. As long as we have this nebulous at best notion of good guys and villains, our media apparatuses can mangle and distort that into whatever suits their purposes. We have this gigantic, sinister engine that just churns out conflicts all day for us to watch. Harry Potter can defeat racism without changing anything. Captain America can beat up all the Nazis he wants as long as it's never mentioned that the Nazi interests align with U.S. corporate interests in too many ways to count. Joe Biden can send planet-destroying weapons to Ukraine because it's what the Jedi would have done. We get a little show out of the chicken being headless. In January of 2021, Donald Trump ordered the assassination of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani at the behest of his military advisors. Nothing was gained from this. Indeed, nothing could be gained from this. It was a senseless act of violence against a nation that wants nothing more than to be its own part of the world stage. In response, however, prominent cleric Shahab Maradi said this, and it's 100% true. Quote, in your opinion, if anyone around the world wants to take their revenge on the assassination of Soleimani and intends to do it proportionally in the way they suggest, that we take one of theirs now that they've got one of ours, who should we consider to take out in the context of America? Think about it. Are we supposed to take out Spider-Man and SpongeBob? They don't have any heroes. We have a country in front of us with a large population and a large landmass, but it doesn't have any heroes. All of their heroes are cartoon characters. They're all fictional, end quote. This objectively sick burn cuts right to the core. When was the last time you heard of anyone in the U.S. government actually accomplishing something good for the people, something pure and unfettered by compromise, or not justified by tortured statistics? All the U.S. government is good at is producing weapons, locking up black people, and funding movies that make those things look heroic. 
Anyway, back to the superheroes, I guess. Black Widow and Hawkeye are in constant communication as they murder their way through the office buildings. They're doing cool flips and sweet jumps. On the eighth page of the comic, we finally get our justification for why this is happening. Sort of. Black Widow, while unloading on a lady sitting at her desk, three men carrying file folders, and another person checking their email in the background, says, quote, I expected a little more resistance. I know Shield Intel said these were just worker bees, low caste organizers with an aptitude for filing, but before she's interrupted by Hawkeye, who tells her he can't concentrate on killing people while she's talking. In so many words. Oh, that's bad. So, obviously, we're dealing with some sort of alien force. The dehumanizing language of worker bees pretty much gives that away. That's fine, whatever. But it's hardly a big reveal. The book doesn't muse on the horrific actions of these heroes before dramatically exposing the office workers to be alien infiltrators. It just shows two leathery weirdos ventilating what look like normal people until a bomb in the building blows up. Oh yeah, a bomb in the building is about to blow up. But before it does, Hawkeye tells his team that they can do whatever they want to the white-collared workers, but they have to make sure they don't destroy any hard drives. Honestly, it might have been even worse if this issue had focused on, like, a new recruit to S.H.I.E.L.D. or the U.N. who hadn't been properly briefed or hadn't been given clearance. We would have followed their horror and confusion at what these supposed heroes were doing to seemingly innocent people, only to have Hawkeye or Nick Fury turn around at the end and take the mask off of one of them and say something like, I know this looked bad, but see, thank you for your unquestioning service. I mean, it would have been more interesting in terms of story construction, but that would have made it even more effective propaganda. So, the bomb goes off and we see a whole page dedicated to the view of the explosion from the street. It's here that you really begin to understand how fucking dreary this book is, but especially this issue. The colors in this one are so muted that the US flags outside the buildings look like those dumbass black and white ones that conservative goofballs like so much. Black Widow calls out to Hawkeye in a panic, while not slowing her pace of greasing worker bees alongside heavily armed commandos, and we see the building collapse where the bomb went off. The secret agent backup guy dressed as a firefighter pulls out a handgun and also radios Hawkeye in a moment of desperate tension. I'm kidding, it's drab and uninteresting. Everyone is just standing around. At the top of the next page, we see Hawkeye finally answering as he hangs on to an exposed piece of rebar 38 stories off the ground. With his other hand, he's clutching tight to a soldier he saved from falling. The rest of the team didn't make it. Pity. Air support gives us our next justification for all the violence by radioing to Hawkeye that some of the sleeper agents survived the blast as well and that they're headed toward him. They can't do anything to help because the bad guys are too well shielded. Hawkeye calls out to the Black Widow for some help, and she pulls off this impossible stunt of jumping between the buildings while catching a rifle that someone threw her from their helicopter, and then using it to paint the wreckage of the office building with the blood of the encroaching bad guys. Hawkeye begs her for an update on the situation, and she tells him not to be such an old woman, because it's funny when women make jokes like that. Women who are written by men. And there it is. All 15 pages of action. Boy, howdy, that wasn't a lot of fun. We're about to get into the real meat of the issue, but before that, I want to talk about the United States' track record of protecting its borders. Did you know that you can check at any time you want 
how many children the U.S. is holding at the southern border. I'll include the link in the show notes. As of May 31, 2023, there were 7,053 children trapped in chain-link cages without their parents by the United States government. I'm so glad that the Democrats and the Republicans are keeping me safe from such a threat. It's funny. When I talk to most people about this, the conversation goes one of two ways. Either there is total agreement that it's unthinkable, or I get this weird ambivalence and even some attempted justification. I never talk to conservatives about it, so I never hear that it's, you know, a good thing or whatever. However, in neither of the cases I do hear do the people I'm talking to think anything can be done about it. And that begins to blur with a sentiment that nothing should be done about it. And I find this baffling. How did our current border scare actually start? Obviously, it stems from the fact that the United States is built completely on land that it stole from Native Americans with the labor of people that it stole from Africa. And that should never be forgotten. It's foundational to every single criticism of the U.S., its wealth, and the mechanism by which it got that wealth. As for the modern struggle today, you know, the one that's more relevant to the notion of invaders that this comic traffics in, we can actually look back to the anti-communist civil wars in Latin America for its genesis. In the 1970s and early 80s, far-right governments like those in Argentina, Chile, El Salvador, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Brazil, etc., were engaging in international campaigns of terror against anyone even vaguely leftist, including people in unions, students, academics, and even atheists. They did this with the help of the United States in order to eliminate any resistance to the corporate exploitation of land and resources that the governments were inviting. Far from being satisfied with mere torture and murder, the various governments' intent was to stamp out the dangerous ideas of dignity and freedom and self-determination that communism espouses permanently. Thus, the practice of kidnapping the children of those perceived threats was born. In El Salvador in the 80s, the Salvadoran government, using tactics learned from the U.S.'s military campaigns in Vietnam, engaged in a scorched earth policy. They intended to break the will of the people who were beginning to organize against the exploitation of their homeland by coffee companies. Part of this involved the taking of an estimated 1,000 children from their parents. The Salvadoran state was supported financially by the U.S. government under Carter and then especially under Reagan. At the height of its terror and repressive activities, El Salvador was receiving between one and two million dollars a day from the U.S. government in order to buy weapons and pay the salaries of roving groups of soldiers who would just murder anyone suspected of not liking the current state of affairs. Sounds a little like government agents Hawkeye and Black Widow in an office building, doesn't it? It should be noted, too, that the UN and its so-called peace process in El Salvador allowed ultra-right-wing paramilitary soldiers to be given power as part of the official police force. Per the Brookings Institution, a milquetoast liberal imperialist think tank in Washington, D.C., quote, In El Salvador, ending the violence became the primordial drive. We focused on demobilizing opposing forces, decommissioning weapons, and creating alternative livelihoods for combatants. In this rush, General Ponce in Relay succeeded in placing 1,500 soldiers from the most disreputable battalions 
into the new police force, a clear violation of the UN-mediated peace accords, but no one had an alternative solution, end quote. So the UN obviously just did nothing, and as we know from its very history, intended to do nothing. The parallel between Latin American civil wars and the current U.S. border crisis, as we like to call it, is, of course, that children were taken away from their parents to discipline and corral labor. Slave labor, whether wage slavery or chattel slavery, must be tightly controlled, and the threat of a kidnapped child is highly motivating to keep someone working under brutal, untenable conditions. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. Cut to 1994, and Bill Clinton's Operation Gatekeeper effectively militarized all easy entry and exit points at the U.S.'s southern border, but deliberately left unguarded certain dangerous corridors into the country through the Arizona desert. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more. This, combined with the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, by hiring a record number of new border guards, and the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, both of which fast-tracked detention and deportation, essentially created a spiked roundabout for immigrants either leaving or entering the country. The way in was hard but the way out was harder. This situation forced anyone coming to the United States illegally to accept terrible working conditions with zero labor protections and nearly negligible wages on threat of possible death by dehydration and exposure in the desert or probable death by execution at the hands of the state or beating by border patrol officers. And remember, the only reason people come to the U.S. illegally looking for work is that the United States has destroyed or has caused to be destroyed the economies of these people's home countries. See my El Salvador example from earlier, but honestly, it's one of dozens, scores of U.S. interventions internationally. All of this, every spinning plate, every puzzle piece, whatever metaphor you want to use, comes down to labor and class warfare. Illegalized people cannot legally be hired, but the penalty for being someone labeled illegal is far worse than the penalty for hiring someone labeled illegal. This is why factory owners get a slap on the wrist and illegal factory workers get sentenced to slow death. The 80s and 90s neoliberal push to force women into the labor pool by slashing family care programs resulted in a new market for the domestic labor of illegalized individuals. This means that more immigrant families were enticed to make the dangerous trek into the United States to look for new work as nannies, cleaners, or general caregivers because poor U.S. moms were being forced to work to support the kids they could no longer afford to stay at home with. It used to be that immigrant laborers were able to leave their families and especially their children behind in their home countries and take comfort in the fact that they could eventually return to them. But as right-wing forces like the Contras in Nicaragua began conscripting child soldiers or just straight-up kidnapping kids to punish leftists, it was less and less safe for parents to move to the U.S. without their children. For the most part, children don't make good workers. There's not nearly as much that young children can do to make someone money that a teenager or an adult can. And if you've been paying any attention at all, 
you know exactly what the U.S. government does to people who don't work. It jails them. It locks them away in private prisons so that billionaires can make money off fat government contracts. In any real sense, imperialism and its byproduct anti-communism are the largest threats to the world. And the United States is the current top-of-the-charts leader in both. Our government creates terrible conditions for people in other countries so that international corporations can reap super profits off what is essentially slave labor, and then we demonize and discriminate against the foreigners who we basically forced into coming to work for only marginally better pay here. To be sure, the foreigners in this book are indeed evil. They're shape-shifting alien supremacists bent on subjugating the population of the Earth. But here's the kicker. This story isn't real. Anyway, back to it. We're back aboard the Triskelion, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s floating amphibious fortress headquarters. It's currently stationed five miles off the coast of New York City. For some reason, we can see a bunch of fighter jets have been scrambled, but they're never mentioned. Inside, we find Nick Fury, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., introducing Thor and Tony Stark, not currently wearing his Iron Man suit, to Hawkeye and Black Widow. He refers to them as, quote, the leading lights of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s Black Ops division. Man, this next section is packed with things to talk about. Black Ops, as you might know already, are clandestine operations that either governments or private entities such as large corporations engage in quietly and sometimes illegally to advance their own interests. These are often violent, but much of the time they're more subtle and involve varying degrees and depths of infiltration and intelligence gathering. The reigning king of private black ops is a little company you might have heard of formerly called Blackwater and now known as Academy. I'm going to keep calling it Blackwater because that's the name everyone really still knows it by. It's run by a monster named Eric Prince, the brother to Donald Trump's Secretary of Education and ardent public school destroyer, Betsy DeVos. Blackwater engages in secretive security and intelligence missions all over the world. It has contracts with numerous governments and gigantic corporations. Pretty pertinent to our discussion today is the fact that one of their most surprising clients in recent years was the Walt Disney Company. Now, not much is known about the contract other than that Disney paid a subsidiary of Blackwater $24,000 to scout and potentially secure, whatever that means, filming locations in Morocco. That's all the info we have, but it's still a little weird for the ostensible arbiter of United States pop culture, the go-to name in entertaining our children and shaping their earliest experiences to be contracting at all with the exact private military that was so incredibly responsible for the death and destruction in Iraq once the U.S. invaded. Perhaps even more relevant to the episode, if not necessarily the comic, is another of their major clients. In 2010, the magazine The Nation revealed that the mega-evil food corporation Monsanto hired one of Blackwater's alter-ego companies called Total Intelligence Solutions to infiltrate and report on activist groups that were opposing Monsanto's efforts. Let that sink in. Just like in the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, a giant corporation that steals land from people 
uses police and military terror to force those people to work on the land that used to be theirs, and with that land grows one pesticide-soaked crop that has been modified to grow as quickly and cheaply as possible with no thought to the health or well-being of the people it will feed until the very land itself is drained of all ability to naturally sustain life, is paying another corporation that is responsible for the murdering, torturing, poisoning, and general terrorizing of an entire region of the world to spy on people who simply want these things to stop happening. When we talk about black ops in the real world, this is what we mean. There's a direct line that can be drawn from actions like this to the so-called border crisis. It's still happening. It's worse now than it ever was. It's going to get worse until someone does something about it, and God knows our current government won't. So, we have black ops being lauded and used to advance some sense of national or planetary security in this issue. It's basically going to be like this for the rest of the season. Fury finishes his introduction by saying that Hawkeye and Black Widow are going to be joining the regular above-ground field team as soon as S.H.I.E.L.D. finishes falsifying their backgrounds. The U.S. military and intelligence agencies refer to this process as sheep-dipping, and it's a doozy. It's historically been used to alter the identities of agents of the state so that their illegal underground activities can be distanced from the government, should any questions arise. Are we seeing a pattern here? The U.S. and its allies sure love to make a bunch of rules for everyone else to follow. Fury then introduces two more characters who are apparently still on the Black Ops team and will remain there for, as Fury says, obvious reasons. These are Quicksilver, a guy who runs real good, and his sister, the Scarlet Witch, who has the enormously, unbelievably, overwhelmingly unfair power to manipulate probability. Turns out these kids aren't just wanted mutant terrorists, they're also the son and daughter of the number one wanted mutant terrorist, Magneto, a guy who can sometimes control all metal and other times control only the magnetic ones, depending on who's writing. I simply don't have time to go into the history of the U.S.'s support for and reliance on international terrorists. But rest assured, we will get there this season. For now, just remember that two of the terrorists that rammed the airplanes into the World Trade Center on 9-11 were CIA assets who lived for a while in San Diego on the agency's dime. Any hoozle, Hawkeye and Black Widow question why the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver weren't present at the operation earlier that day. Quicksilver assures them that he was there and suggests that slowing the security footage from the building's cameras would prove so. There's sort of a weird, playful back and forth, and it leaves the reader feeling like nothing was accomplished character-wise. Hawkeye wants to know where Captain America is, and Nick Fury tells him he has no idea. Very reassuring. Listen, I apologize in advance for this coming section. Specifically, I apologize for the vomitous rage it's going to induce. Rest assured, we will take back what is ours. Tony mentions in the meeting that every 10 minutes he's there, Stark International is losing a million dollars. I'm not super sure this math works out, though, for a man worth, as he says, $350 billion on paper. According to a Yahoo article by Oliver O'Connell, Jeff Bezos, known for being the richest man in the world at various times, makes roughly $147,000 a minute. Considering that comes out to, yeah, about a million and a half in 10 minutes, you'd think Miller was fairly on the mark. Heh. 
That's assuming that Tony means that Stark International is losing that money because he's valuing 10 minutes of his labor at $1 million. It's hard to say, of course, because that can't possibly be the case as CEOs don't do anything. But if we assume that's what he means, and we map that onto Bezos's wealth versus his, we come up with a different number. Remember, Tony's worth $350 billion in 2002 money, which comes out to $505.5 billion in 2020 money. Bezos was worth $202 billion in 2020. So if Bezos made $147,000 every minute, then Tony must have been making $367,500 every minute in 2020 money, or $3.6 million every 10 minutes. That means that Tony's actual 2002 value to Stark International would have been $2,175,493.87 every 10 minutes, more than double what Miller assumed. Again, this is all spurious and unverifiable, and not just because one of these people doesn't actually exist. But the point is that the numbers we're dealing with here are extreme. Extreme to the point where even the people who think about them long enough to include them in a story that took at least some thought and effort get them wrong. A 2016 Stanford study found that Americans grossly underestimate CEO pay. A quote from the article, quote, CEO compensation figures are much higher than the public is aware of, Professor David F. Larker of Stanford Graduate School of Business said in a university statement, in many parts of the country, it is incomprehensible that anyone can earn this much money, end quote. The study goes on to report that 74% of people surveyed also believe that CEOs are paid too much. More than 60% of people surveyed believe there should be a limit on executive pay. But only about half of them believe that the government should do anything about it. The absurd logical gap here tells us one thing very, very clearly. The decades of propaganda against the idea of our government intervening to actually help its own people has worked, at least to an effective enough degree. God forbid the government do anything authoritarian, like make it illegal for a CEO, a person who does literally zero work, to make 324 times as much as the average working person in the US. The average, not the poorest among us, the average. Now think about this in terms of the international terror and fascistic regimes like in El Salvador from earlier that the U.S. and to an extent the U.N. have financially and militarily supported just so these CEOs and their company shareholders can make even more money by essentially enslaving overseas workers. These numbers are huge. The immiseration required to get to these numbers is unthinkable. The deliberate decisions to erect a system that allows this to happen and the continued support of it are sociopathic. There is no such thing as a good billionaire because to become a billionaire, one must be a bad person. One must chop the head off the chicken and drip feed it just enough to profit off its miserable existence for as long as one can. Tony Stark, by sitting there and somehow costing his company a million dollars every 10 minutes, must also be costing the world its soul. 
He cannot be in such a position without an economic system that violently forces others to work for him for slave wages. He cannot be there without capitalism. Once Tony shuts the hell up, Fury gets on with the presentation he's prepared for everyone. This is pretty story heavy, it's definitely important to the plot of the entire book, but my god is it tedious. Fury explains how there are actually 11 known alien races currently living on Earth, one of which, the Chitauri, is a race of genocidal shape-shifting supremacists who infiltrated German politics in the 1920s and were responsible for the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party. Piggybacking off the Nazis' own rhetoric of hate and global domination, the Chitauri came closest to achieving their plans of conquest in the 40s, but were stopped by the Allied powers. Notably, the bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were actually dropped because those cities were the homes to two gigantic Chitauri training camps. This flies in the face of actual history, of course, since the bombs were dropped for no reason other than to intimidate the Soviet Union. But I guess the parallel is that, in both the fictional and the real instances, innocent people's lives were completely disregarded. Fury continues by alerting the assembled group that the Chitauri, thought to have been wiped out, have been popping up again all over the world. Fury explains that the people in the office buildings that Hawkeye, Black Widow, and apparently Quicksilver massacred were actually all sleeper agents of the Chitauri who were organizing, quote, everything from mind control drugs in the water supply to the infiltration of the national media. Mind control experiments and media manipulation in my United States? Get out of town. When Fury states that the evidence points to an even larger planetary scale plot, Thor asks him to elaborate, but Fury claims that's all they know for now. He then leads the group to a lab and shows them the mangled corpse of a Chitauri. On the way, Black Widow mentions that she used to be in the KGB, which means that she must be at least 29 years old, but probably older because the KGB was dissolved in 1991, 11 years prior to this comic. The body under the sheet in the lab is grotesque to say the least. It might be the only good panel in the whole issue. Hitch does a great job with the bubbling, festering mass. Ironic, since the only excitement in a comic that is two-thirds action comes from an inanimate corpse. Fury gets called away by a radio interruption. It turns out that the S.H.I.E.L.D. satellite division has found Captain America and that Captain America, in his rage at Hank Pym's abuse and assault of the Wasp, their colleague on the Ultimates and Pym's wife, has tracked Pym down to a bar in Chicago. The final panel shows a star-chested Captain America confronting Hank Pym, a besotted wife-beater. For the Ultimates, there is no justice, there is no dignity, unless America doles it out. Greetings once again to all of you out there in listener land. We hope you're doing well, taking time for yourself and for your loved ones, and never letting the constant threat of capitalist exploitation wear you down. For some nice news, we recently held a vote on what our community should produce and provide for the people's struggle in our wonderful little corner of the world. In a stunning upset, the proposal for an ice cream factory which looks suspiciously like it was written in crayon won in a landslide against the opposing submission of greenhouses for vegetables. Hey, the will of the people is the will of the people. But 
before we go, we'd like to thank the latest additions to our incredible community. First off, a major thank you to Bryce Farrell for the generous tip through the show's link tree. Thank you to Jim the Mail Carrier for upgrading your support from supervillain casualty to odd bystander. And thank you so much to our newest Patreon supporters, Tony the DC Nerd, Touch of a Genius, Paddlefish from the Blighted and Substandard Zone, and Will from Colorado. And of course, thank you again to our Destroyer of Empire level supporter, David Barajas. As well as the bonus episodes and their names read at the end of each episode, Destroyer of Empire level supporters also get a coveted seat on the council. We get a lot of suggestions for comics to do bonus episodes on, and as much as we'd like to cover all of them, there are only so many we have time for. Destroyer of Empire-level supporters get to submit and decide upon the bonus one-off episodes for each season. Thanks again to all the Patreon supporters. Every little bit keeps this show sustainable. You yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at pod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics. Comics.